everyone. This is Evan at Stride back with another episode of the Stride Power Podcast. Today I'm joined by coach, uh, an extraordinaire of wealth of information, Andy Dubois. Andy, how are you doing today? Very well, thanks, Evan. Very well. Uh, really happy to be here. Yeah, thanks so much for joining me. Um, I'm glad our schedules could line up because we don't happen to be in the same time zone or nearly the same area. <laughs> um, but it happens to be pretty convenient for an afternoon in uh, you know, the United States in the morning in Australia. Yeah, it worked out all right. Yes. Um, so if you want to start off by telling people a little bit about yourself and what you do, maybe where you're located, your, your history with running in the sport, just tell people a little bit about yourself. Yes, I'm, a, I'm located in a little place called Byron Bay on the uh, east coast of Australia, which is just south of Brisbane. Um, I'm an online running coach specialising in ultras and trail running, um, which is 95% of my business. I coach a few marathoners and a couple of shorter athletes, but usually it's, it's kind of 50k plus and 100k's or more. Um, my own running, look, I, I did Ironman for 10 years um, and loved Ironman. Um, Kind of did Hawaii twice and run was always my best leg. Uh, and then I moved to London with my wife for six years and, and the thought of training for Ironman in London just did not appeal at all. Um, and then a friend of mine said, oh, what about this race in Scotland? It's 95 miles. And once you've done kind of nine, ten Ironman, you kind of think, oh, I can do that. There's no problems at all. So I uh, signed up to that, did the race and made every mistake known to mankind, managed to finish somehow. Um, but about 10 hours slower than what I'd hoped to have done. So then I went back to the drawing book. So I was a personal trainer as well and triathlon coach, run coach for gee, 25 years or so now. So I kind of went back to the drawing board. I went, I think this ultra game is a little bit different to Ironman, a little bit different to marathon. I think I need to think about it a little bit differently. So I did that. And then the second race was UTMB, uh, Ultra Trail, Mont Blanc, mm-hmm. which most people would know, I think. Um, and then I had a blind of a race, came top 100, did sub 30 hours, and I've been doing ultras ever since. Um, and then business-wise, I've gradually moved from less and less personal training and more and more coaching until about five, six years ago, went to 100% coaching. Um, and then Stride came out. Well, I, I picked it up probably just before you moved to the foot pod. Mm-hmm. You're still using a heart rate strap. Uh, so I picked it up then and I've been working with it. That must be, what, two and a half years? Something maybe a little bit for 2015. Three years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's yeah. kind of three, four years now. Um, so I picked it up then. I've been working with it with myself and it, just a few athletes that were interested in it um, and pretty quickly saw the benefits in terms of trial running and ultras. Uh, and now probably about 40% of my client base uses Stride um, and loving it. it. It's just allows me as a coach to coach much, much better. Um, to give you an example, like if you're doing, say, hill repeats, um, what speed should you go at? I don't know. How do I assess how well that client did the session i don't know okay they ran six and a half minute miles and six and a half minute k's up the hill i don't know whether that's good or bad but with power now i know okay that was at 90 percent ftp or whatever so it just makes my job a lot easier in terms of assessing training uh, and makes the clients the athletes job much easier in terms of how to pace mm-hmm. how to train so it's been it's been a really good partnership mm-hmm. um we'll take a deep dive into trail running ultra running um you know power power targets. I want to start off uh, maybe a little bit simpler for people that are curious about what a coach, uh, what that coach athlete relationship actually looks like in terms of your specific uh, coaching and your own kind of coaching mindset, what would be the benefit of somebody, uh, you know, working with a coach uh, one-on-one or maybe subscribing to a training plan with some sort of input from a coach? How does 
your coach methodology work, but then what is the benefit you think of an athlete, you know, maybe making, making that next step and getting a coach? A good question. Um, it depends on the athlete. I mean, in simple terms, most people don't have the time to understand training as well as they could have. Uh, and therefore they make some simple mistakes. So, the mistakes I see all the time are running easy runs too fast, not running hard runs hard enough, not having a real plan about, I think I should be doing some harder runs, but I don't really know what I should be doing. So what I'll do, I'll type in hill training in Google and get a whole bunch of sessions and I'll just do that. Or speed training and for you know, marathon, speed training for ultra runners, and I'll just do whatever the suggestions are. And look, that's better than nothing, but you know, as we know, being a coach, you, you want to have an idea about where you're at and where you need to get to and the types of sessions that will get you to where you want to be in the best way and injury-free as possible. Mm-hmm. So I think that's one main benefit is, is having the confidence to know that the training that you are doing is the most effective training that you could be doing specific to both you, your strengths and weaknesses, and the race you're training for. Because obviously, if you're training for UTMB, your training should look vastly different mm-hmm. to training for Boston Marathon. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, that's number one thing. I think the coach relationship, though, goes deeper than that in terms of it's not just about prescribing a bunch of interval sessions and a long run distance and stuff like that. I think you know, the longer I work with clients, the better we get to know each other and the more we can tap into their mindset in terms of, look, what do they really enjoy about running? What's their real deep motivations to running? What races do they want to do? How do they want to go at those races? What defines success for them? Um, and little things like what they can tolerate, like, you know, you read about the rules of you know, like a 10% increase in training is what most people can handle. Look, I've got clients who could, who would break down doing 10% increases. And I've got clients who can go from three weeks off and three weeks later, they're doing 150k a week and injury free and running well. But you don't get that from eight weeks or 12 weeks of coaching. You get that from, you know, a year, two years of coaching. So I think mm-hmm the long-term benefits of coaching are even greater than, say, short-term benefits of coaching because you really get to understand what your client can handle. Uh, and I think that's where the greatest gains are in long-term athlete development. Now, I get a lot of clients saying, what kind of races should I do? And the first question you ask is, like, what kind of races excite you? Like, what do you want to do? And then there's a conversation about, okay, that's too many races for you for this year. That's not enough time to train for that, to compete at the level you want to compete at. So you can have those kind of conversations. But unless you've established that relationship, then I don't think you can have that. So in my business, we kind of really like to get to know the client um, on a personal level uh, to the point where, you know, most of my clients are friends that I could catch up with socially and be mates with. Mm-hmm. Um, because I think that way you understand your athletes a lot better. They're not just like my Monday morning client is training for a marathon. Here's your, here's your marathon program. Mm-hmm. It's not like that with a good coach. I don't think. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, the, the next sort of, thing I'd think is, you know, maybe somebody thinks the coach is right for them, but they're eight weeks into a 16 week training plan, right? They're, they're halfway through training and they just think I've been doing things a certain way, reading a piece of paper a certain way. Um, I'm scared to switch. I'm, I'm, I'm scared of, you know, working with somebody where their training might be different. Do you have any sort of thoughts on that or words of suggestion for somebody that might be on the fence of the timing of when to start working with a coach? Yeah, look, it's a good question. I think the main thing is to be upfront with your potential coach and have, you know, as many conversations as you think you need to have to feel confident that the coach understands where you're at and what you want to do. Um, if the coach is not happy to do that, I would just look for another coach. Mm-hmm. Or every coach has got their own methodology, you know, their own kind of unique kind of way of training clients. And I think 
I know for me, if I took on a client who was eight weeks into a, you know, let's say a 20 week marathon training program, I'm not going to reinvent the wheel. You know, mm-hmm. you've got 12 weeks. That's it. No, that's, that's critical time of training. So I'm going to look at what they've done for those last eight weeks and go, okay, this is where you're at. I'm not going to go back and do a block of VO2 max training or you know, something completely different that they haven't done yet because they've only got 12 weeks. They haven't got a lot of time. Mm-hmm. If they said, look, I've got nine months, well, it's a blank slate. You can start whoever you want because you've got right. plenty of time. So I think as a athlete, you want to be, a, you know, you want your coach to know, this is what I've done. This is where I want to get to. I'm scared of changing these sessions. And often athletes are kind of a bit worried that the coach will make them do sessions that won't fit into their routine. You know, they've got a busy job, they've got kids, they're a mom or they, you know, they, they work 12 hours a day or, or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. And I think that's another conversation with the coach you need to have. You need to be upfront and say, look, this is the time I've got. What I was doing was kind of working, but I think it could be better, but I haven't got much more time to train. Mm-hmm. Can you help me? Mm-hmm. And just have that open, honest conversation. And a good coach will engage in that conversation and say, look, this is how I would think about training you. Uh, how does that sound? And if they don't, they're probably not the right coach for you. There's plenty mm-hmm. out there, so just shop around. Yeah, um, that's that's another great point that I wanted to ask too. Is somebody, you know, might just want to take a leap of faith, and their their friend in their local running club says, "Oh, I work with this with this coach," and then you know, um, you you send a feeler email out, or you you fill out a survey and stuff, and then you just kind of don't feel like it's a match. You don't feel like it's necessarily a right fit. How does somebody know that a coach won't really line up? with them is there any sort of things that people might be able to look for in in that um i think i would be asking where do you see the improvements coming from my training as it is at the moment Mm -hmm. because that will start to get them the coach having to kind of give some input into okay this is what you're doing at the moment this is where i think the improvements can be made um, so that will hopefully give the athlete some confidence. Okay, he's, he's taken the time to at least look at what I'm doing already. Even though I'm not paying him any money yet, he's taken the time to look at what I've emailed him mm-hmm. and get back to me, give me some feedback on where he thinks the improvements can be made. And I think if the coach starts doing that, then at least you're, you've got some idea what you're buying into. Mm-hmm. Um, if he's not comfortable or she's not comfortable doing that, then I'd be skeptical. If the coach is not willing to give some kind of broad outline of what they're going to do with you i'd be skeptical mm-hmm. um i think you know you know when you meet somebody face to face um whether you're trying to start a relationship a uh, romantic relationship or just a friendship relationship you kind of know fairly soon whether you click you kind of go you know what i like this person you've met them for five minutes you know mm-hmm. um i think the same is with coach that can be through email or through skype conversations whatever you're going to throw a few emails back and forth and go i like i like what he's saying he seems to understand where I'm coming from. He seems to understand or she understands what I'm trying to do. And I think this relationship might work. If mm-hmm. after a few emails, you're going to go, it doesn't, I don't think he's listening. I think he's just like trying to sell me stuff. I just don't go with him. There's so many coaches out there. I would ask for another recommendation, do some searching. Um, Cause there's plenty of good coaches out there. You just got to find the best one. For you. And look, some coaches may come highly recommended, mm-hmm. but they may not be the right coach like if someone approached me to look Andy on I've done a few park runs and I'm really keen on getting my 10k time quicker so look I'm, I'm not the right person for you let's I could help you but look that's not my speciality and because it's not my speciality I'm not invested in that like I'm not trying to be, be the best 10k coach there is so I recommend you go see somebody else mm-hmm. and I think that's the other mistake coaches often oversell themselves. I said, look, I can coach you whether you want to do a fast park run or you want to run 100 miles. No matter what you want to do, I can do that. 
I get a bit skeptical of coaches that say that because if you're a really good coach, then you're investing a lot of time in upgrading your knowledge. Mm-hmm. Now, there's only, much, only so much time you have in the week to do that. And I spend probably on a, on a Slack week, five hours of research on reading studies and, and learning on an average week, probably eight to 10 hours of time reading articles. And that's all tailored towards marathon and up. Mm-hmm. Like if I read an article that, you know, the headline is about improving your 5K time, I kind of like put that to the side because that's not what I'm doing. You know? mm-hmm. So I think if the coach says I can coach anybody, I can do whatever, then I'd be skeptical. They say, look, I, I kind of specialize with people who want to make the jump from half marathon to marathon. They, okay, that's, that's the type of person I want to work with. Right. Um, I don't think a coach has to be an elite athlete. Um, I think sometimes I think a good coach is a step or two down from being elite. I think not to say because you're an elite athlete, you can't be a good coach. I've got a couple of coaches who work for me who are elite athletes and they're great coaches. But I think you've got to be careful because sometimes elite athletes get to be elite because they're genetically gifted and they can pretty much do anything and get to a certain level. Mm-hmm. Um, and often that same system they use will just break mere mortals. Um, <laughs> so I think don't be swayed by the fact that your coach has run a very fast time. Mm-hmm. Be swayed by stories or that your coach or examples that your coach can give you that they've helped people like you. Right. So if you say, look, I'm jumping up for a marathon. I want to do a hundred K ultra. Can you give me examples of people who've done the same stuff? And your coach is mm-hmm. look, you, you're actually the first hundred K runner of, Oh, okay. <laughs> right. I'm not going to be your guinea pig, you know? <laughs> exactly. So I think asking those kind of questions can really help you establish that this is the coach for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's, that's fantastic. Um, so you're, you're talking more about your specialty, not everybody who wants to improve their mile time, their 5K time, they want to run their first 10K. Uh, we're talking a little bit more about people that might be curious about what it takes to uh, you know, run and race on trails. Uh, maybe you're trying to finish, maybe you're trying to race for a top spot, uh, but then extend the distance past 26 miles or 42K. You're going up and up in distance. Um, now I kind of want to focus on what that transition might look like or why it might be an interesting thing for people to do. Usually people say, what, you're running a marathon? If somebody has a work friend, they say, you've run a marathon? I haven't even done a 5K or I can't even run over my block. Um, talking about the shortest possible dif- distance being longer than a marathon is what ultra marathons are all about and that just extension of everything. Um, so for somebody that might be curious, maybe they uh, have read a couple magazines or they've seen online people talking about ultra running uh, and trail running, uh, what would you say is maybe the, the positives about um, maybe being interested in, in running a few of those races or doing that specific type of training? Yeah, good question. Um, they're all good questions, actually. <laughs> <laughs> we, we try, we try. <laughs> Great questions. Um, so I think the first misconception people have is they've, they've done a few road marathons, and let's be honest, road marathons hurt. Um, I mean, I've done, done nine Ironman, like my, my fastest marathon in Ironman is 3.03. So I've run fast marathons. But the time I've been most sore from all the races I've ever done is from a, a road marathon, standalone road marathon. Um, legs have never been sore. No, my legs after 100 miles around Mont Blanc, you know, 10,000 meters of vert, 100 miles, less sore than after doing a road marathon. Um, so I think that's something that people kind of think, well, I hurt so much after doing a road marathon. I can't imagine it hurting even more. Mm-hmm. A 50K trial race, I guarantee is going to hurt you less 
than a road marathon. Guarantee it. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, that's the first thing that people kind of myth people have that it's just going to hurt more. It's not going to hurt more. Um, the second thing, one of the biggest differences I find between road runners and trail runners, and there's always this bit of a good natured debate between the two road runners tend to be, and I was guilty of this when I was doing triathlons and road running tend to be more focused on mile splits. You know, they tend to be the type that if your program says 10 mile run and you get back to your house and you've done 9.7, you'll do an extra 0.3 of a mile around the block to get 10 miles in. You tend to be looking at the numbers a lot more in terms of pacing. Um, whereas in trial running and ultras, it's a lot more lax. It's a lot more proximate. So you know, if you go out for a 10-mile run, first of all, you're probably going out for an hour-and-a-half run, not for a 10-mile run. And that might be nine miles. It might be 10.5 miles. So it's a lot more laid back, I suppose, is, is the term to use. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't mean it's not competitive. It doesn't mean it's not challenging. It's just challenging in a different way. Um, and I think when you're talking 50 to 100K, you know, it gets a bit different when you go longer. But 50 to 100K, it's much more about the experience on the trail. Like, you know, road marathons, whether you're running Boston, New York, London, Paris, like you're running through the streets of the city, let's mm-hmm. be honest. You know, you might look at a few landmarks along the way. Oh, cool, I'm running through, you know, this, but that's really it. You're not taking much more in. And let's face it, in almost every road marathon, there's, there's parts of that road marathon where you're just running through back streets and right. main roads. It's not, you're not going, wow, this is amazing. Right? Um, or as for a lot of trails, like virtually every mile on the trail site, like running through a cool forest or running mm-hmm. past a river, it's a cool mountain. Like the whole experience is a very different experience. And there's lots of research to show that being in nature is just good for the mind. Mm-hmm. It's just good for the soul. And I think that's what trail runners connect in with. They, they've, a lot of them have come from roads. They've just gone, you know, I'm a bit burnt out from just chasing times and PBs. I want something a little bit more. And we're trial running, just getting out in nature and experiencing that, I think is a big draw card for trial runners. Mm-hmm. And as I said, it's, it's not the suffer fest that a lot of people think it is for, for 50 to 100K. Once you talk 100 miles, it is a suffer fest, but in, in a different way. Like it's not, the, it's not the acute leg pain you get trying to run a hard marathon. It's like death by a thousand pinpricks. Right. Um, which you, know, you, you can choose to embrace that. And I've talked on a few podcasts and other places about embracing the, the suffering and mm-hmm. enjoying that and thriving on that as being part of the challenge. Because let's face it, all of us run for a challenge. None mm-hmm. of us, whether we're running 5K or 100 miles, none of us want to get to the end of the, of, you know, across the finish line and go, you know what, that was pretty cool. I probably could have run a lot faster, but I'm not really fussed about that. Like, no one does that. Everyone wants to finish and finish mm-hmm. knowing they've given it a pretty good shot. Like, mm-hmm. I'm not saying they want to win or be age group winners, but they want to finish the line going, you know what, I, I gave it a pretty good shot. Mm-hmm. Um, so we all want to do that. But I think with trial running, there's, or ultra running, particularly on trials, there's a lot more period of time where you're just cruising along the trails, just enjoying it before it gets hard. Right. I think that's a big attraction. So let's say uh, somebody gets really, really interested from listening to this podcast episode. Maybe they're, you know, running right now listening to it or they're in their car driving to work listening to it and they say you know what i have been interested in trails i I, i've run the marathon for a while i'm you know kind of over chasing my my personal best i'm still relatively athletically fit i i can run a good marathon but they want to make that step towards uh trail running specifically uh before they jump up to the ultras or maybe it's vice versa they want to start running longer it could be road stuff still 
Um, what does that process kind of look at? Not necessarily about seeking a coach, but that overall mindset shift. You mentioned that you don't necessarily have to pay attention as much to the numbers, um, but they're really interested in uh, just looking for more information about how to actually move towards that specific type of racing and training. Yeah, look, I think it, it, first of all, for trial running, I think the reason it's not so much about the numbers, unless you've got stride, and we'll talk about that mm -hmm. uh, a little bit later, um, it's because you can't control pace. Pace is determined by the terrain. So I can go out for a 10-mile trial run and do that in an hour and a half. Uh, I could do the same 10 or different 10-mile trial run and do it in two and a half hours. I mean, mm -hmm. to give you an extreme example, I've, I've done a 52-kilometre trial race. Now, it took me 16 and a half hours, and I was just outside the top 10. Wow. All right? Um, and to put that in context, I had 6,000 metres vert. It went up to a peak of 3,800 metres, which... I'm guessing is about 12,000 feet or something, 11,000 yeah. feet, something like that. Uh, up, the, up the volcano, basically, to the top of the volcano and back down again. So massively amounts of vert and stuff. And that took me 16 and a half hours. Whereas another 50k trial race might take you four and a half hours. Mm -hmm. So that, that's why, you know, looking at the numbers and being obsessed about pace just doesn't work anymore because it just depends on the terrain. But I think moving into trials, um, Find something that excites you. Find, find a race that kind of goes, it'd be pretty cool to run that race. And there's like trial races popping around all over the world. Um, and distances from you know, your local cross country race, which is really you know, a trial race, mm -hmm. which you know, typically five to 10K, you know, um, four to six miles or whatever, um, up to 200 miles. Mm -hmm. Find something that thinks that looks pretty cool. Um, and then you can start to think about how to train for it. Now, one of the, one of the, the biggest barriers to trial racing is the. The skill factor involved. People see videos of Killian John A kind of running down or along kind of you know, knife edge ridges that are about mm -hmm. a foot wide and a you know, thousand foot drop either side and go, no, trail running's not for me. That's the extreme end of the sport. That's like saying, I don't want to do marathons because I can't run a sub 204 marathon. <laughs> Um, it's just the extreme edge. A lot of trail running is running through lovely forest on undulating kind of paths. Mm -hmm. um, so that's where I would start for somebody's interested. Find some trails and just, and the best way to do that is find some friends. Like, mm -hmm. um, find a trail running group. You know, you, you probably know somebody if you're in a running community that does a bit of trail running. Get out there with some friends who can show you some trails. And once you've been on some trails and, and experienced what it's like running on trails, a lot of people who do trails don't go back to road. And that's not to say trails better than road. It's just different. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think people, a lot of people go to trail once they're a bit, bored of running road whether that's because they're getting older and feel like they can't keep running pbs or whether they're just sick of the pounding on the joints or whether they're just looking for something different um, i find a lot of people want to see move the trials don't go back that much mm -hmm. and probably they should because you know road running is great for improving your speed i don't think the two are necessarily mutually exclusive i think a bit of both can help a lot of runners mm -hmm. um, but yeah it, it tends to be how it goes so i think find a running club, find out where they run trails, join a few tra uh, group trail runs. I know, like I know in Australia, there's just big groups of tra um, trail runners out every Saturday, Sunday mornings that you can join up. And usually trail runners are very forgiving in terms of pace. Like you don't have to be quick. And mm -hmm. usually in a trail run, there'll be a massive difference in pace. Mm -hmm. Like you'll have guys who can do a three hour marathon and people that are running four and a half hour marathons all going for a run together on trails. Because mm -hmm. the quicker people just run ahead, turn around, loop back again mm -hmm. and not think anything of it. Whereas road runners wouldn't do that. You'd have your, your set pace groups. Right. So I think trail runners tend to be a more welcoming community. Um, 
so that's where I would start. Get out with some other runners, mm-hmm. see what it's like, and then take it from there. Great. Um, last hypothetical before we start talking about using power in the trimline and ultra planning. Um, let's say somebody listening to this uh, lives in a city and they have no idea where to start. They're, they're really interested in trail running. They know there might be a local park nearby or they can drive an hour and go to some nice trails, but they want to start practicing some of the skills that they might need when they transfer to the trails. Do you have any tips for people that live in concrete jungles and not uh, very nice forests for improving the skills that they need to be able to run on the trails? Yeah, look, I, I coach a few people where, in various locations like that. I've got uh, quite a few clients who live in the uh, UAE, United Arab Emirates, in mm-hmm. Dubai, in um, Abu Dhabi. And I've got a, a, one client lives in uh, Houston, uh, flat as a pancake, very little trails around. And look, it's not ideal, but there are ways. I mean, a lot of those clients do a lot of stair work. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you're training for, you want to do a trial race, and a lot of trial races have uh, you know, a lot more vert than road runs. So if you're training for a race that's got a fair bit of vert, and you think, well, I live in a concrete jungle. Uh, it, it's flat everywhere. I can only get out to some trials maybe once a week or once a fortnight at best. Um, then your two options are really stairing, stair climbs, you know, hiking up and down stairs. Most mm-hmm. people can get some kind of stairwell. Um, or treadmills. Um, you can set your treadmill on incline and practice running up hills, practice hiking up hills. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very difficult practicing the skills required because trail running does have an element of skill. Not so much on forest trails, but when you start descending kind of mountain paths and rocky single track, there is an element of skill. And then it comes more down to your agility. So things like hopping, jumping, those kind of drills, plyometric drills can help, but nothing really beats time on the trails all you can do is kind of do some conditioning work to say okay my body's got the strength it requires to do that now i have to give it the skill and you can't really do that unless you get out to the trails mm-hmm. but other than that yeah it's it's strength work doing lunges and squats and stuff to build up hill strength it's it's um stairs and treadmill hiking up treadmills running up treadmills options you really got great so you can build up that sort of base fitness like anything and then you can put it into action once you start going a little bit more specifically you put in that hour drive on the weekends and you run on trails and stuff um all right so i want to i want to switch to maybe what people are most curious about uh how do you actually use the concept of power on the trails or planning for an ultra marathon let's say you know somebody has uh decided that they're super excited and specifically they want to run a hilly trail race where they have to use the skills of and you'll, you'll talk more about this more than i am much, much more educated than i am about this but um power hiking and and there there are different types of targets that they're looking for on different sorts of inclines and surfaces so somebody hypothetically is signing up for their first trail race and it has a fair amount of this vertical elevation gain this vert uh you keep talking about and referencing um how do they use power as a concept in the race to hit their maximum potential so I think with power on trails, and when I say trails, I'm talking uh, something with a decent amount of vert mm-hmm. or technicality. Mm-hmm. I think there's a few key concepts that differentiate between road running. Uh, with road running, you can do a critical power test, and that will pretty well govern all your training zones, and you can work out your race power, um, stick to the same power level. And when we're not talking hills, like for a road runner, a hill is, you know, a two to a five percent gradient. Anything more than five percent is is very steep for a road run. Uh, for trail running, you know, four to five percent gradient is what we call douche grade. It's kind of like that. 
it's that annoying hill that's like okay it's a hill but like it's not really a hill mm-hmm. um so when i talk in hills i'm talking steeper than that mm-hmm. so i think the thing to understand with trail running is you, you have to realize that running up a steep hill you need to think about that as a different activity to running on the flat just like you wouldn't use bike power and equate the same power levels to running on the flat you know they're two different activities and right. and once you understand power at all you realize that the power you can put on the bike is not the same as the power you can run with mm-hmm. um, and the same goes for for running up hills for hiking up hills for running down hills um, so really what you're looking at is you need kind of four key numbers you need your, your running power on flats and when i sort of say flats i'm talking about up to about a four percent gradient and to a, a minus two percent decline so it's a gentle downhill that's what i call running on the flats um, then you need your power for running up hills you need your power for hiking up hills and you need your power for running down hills now that might start sounding complicated but let's flip it around and look at the alternative if you don't use power and you're trying to plan what kind of pace you should run at uh, during trails or racing, what are your options? Well, you, you can't use pace because pace is going to vary with every step because the trail changes incline all the time. So looking at your watch and going, I'm doing eight-minute miles is useless because 10 seconds later, you're doing nine-minute miles or 10-minute miles. So we, we have to rule out pace. You can use heart rate, um, which people do use, but it has its limitations as well. Heart rate is so affected by fatigue um so a, a good example of heart rate and fatigue is when i was doing um, triathlons my my threshold heart rate in terms of if i was doing say a set of say two by 20 minute tempo efforts um about 165 heart rate was what i could hold you know if i start pushing 167 168 i'm going to blow up mm-hmm. if i was doing say one mile reps with a decent recovery i could get to say 172 174 um now come race day fresh legs half marathon race day I averaged 175, which was 10 beats higher than my tempo, Mm -hmm. which was actually about 15 beats higher than what I could do a half marathon in full training. Mm -hmm. So 15 beats is is massive. Like it's one zone to the next. It's just Mm -hmm. not usable. So you've got that fatigue effect on it. Then you've got caffeine. Then you've got sleep. You've got stress. And when I say stress, external stress, you could be stressed because you had a shitty day at work. That's going to affect your heart rate. So there's just so many variables heat and temperature are massive like if you go out and do a three-hour trial run you start your run at say eight in the morning and it's i don't know 65 70 degrees uh and then you finish your run and it's 90 degrees and 80 percent humidity your heart rate's going to have gone up 10 or 15 20 beats but does that mean you're in a different training zone mm-hmm. probably not like you can't tell from just heart rate alone so heart rate has a huge amount of variables unless you're really skilled in understanding the variables understanding how they affect it's basically useless in a trial run Mm. so then the only other alternative we have is perceived rate of exertion um, which is what we've used for for years that's because that's been the only option now you might say why don't you just use that well you could just use that but why not use something that's better so to give an example in races of, of the difference between power and perceived rate of exertion one of the biggest problems in ultras is going out too fast now, the reason for that is when you look at, say, a 100K trial race, for most people, the intensity they can hold is the equivalent of their long run, mm-hmm. and actually the last half is usually a little bit slower than that. All right? So you, know, you do your normal 20-mile trial run uh, in training, and that pace is about, about what you should start at for your race. Mm-hmm. 
Now, of course, on fresh legs, with the adrenaline, the gun goes off, there's 400 people around, that pace feels super, super easy. Mm-hmm. Like super easy because you've got fresh legs. You haven't done 60, 70, you know, 80 miles or whatever you've done in the week and then done your long run on tired legs. You've now done a three-week taper and you've got legs that are fresh as a daisy jumping out of their skin, dying to run. So that pace feels so, so easy. So you go a little bit faster. It still feels super comfortable, but it's a bit faster. And then 30 miles in, you start going, oh, actually, it doesn't feel so easy anymore. Maybe your stomach's a bit upset. Maybe you start to get cramped. And then you blame it on poor nutrition. You blame it on, on having taken enough sodium or whatever else, you know, where the, the true cause of the problem is you started out too fast. Mm-hmm. So to calibrate perceived rate of exertion, you really need to have done several races and virtually the same race with the same taper to eventually go, okay, so when I start at this kind of intensity, I blow up. Mm-hmm. Eventually, you kind of figure it out. Well, right. why not get it right first time and use power? You know, because with power, you can go, okay, in my long runs, when I was running on the flats, I was sitting at 240 watts. So come race day, 240 watts on the flats, okay, it feels super comfortable. I'm probably going too easy, but this is what the numbers say, mm-hmm. so I'll stick to it. And all of a sudden, you've got an objective measure of what you're doing. And all of a sudden, you get to kind of 70K into the 100K race going, you know what? I'm actually feeling pretty good. I'm still running when I should be still running. And then you start having you know, good race after good race and really enjoying your running more mm-hmm. rather than the last 20 miles being this suffer fest where you go, you know what? I've done my 45 miles. I just want this to be over now. Like I know I'm going to finish. I want it to be over quickly because it's just hurting. Mm-hmm. Whereas when you pace a race well, you can actually enjoy the last 10, 15, 20 miles of a 100K race mm-hmm. because you're feeling good and passing people. So that's the difference power can make. So mm-hmm. when you understand that, you kind of think, okay, well, maybe putting a bit of time into investing a bit of time into learning about power is probably time well worthwhile spending. Mm-hmm. Totally. So the, the, the thing that I'd, I'd say then is, okay, you talk about these different power targets. Uh, how do I go about even discovering them? Because uh, I think people that might have been used to training with power for road racing, they know what you're talking about, how when you're running on a flat surface, you might have one level, let's just say it's this 240 watts. And then when you run up a, what maybe somebody doing a road run calls a quote unquote hill, they say they jump up to 280, they jump up to 300, it's the same effort. Uh, and then, or it's, it's the same pace, but it's a much harder effort and they, they're trying to maintain that pace. Then when you run downhill, you notice, yeah, it goes down. But now you talk about having these much more rapid fluctuations of inclines and elevation, you have different surfaces. So how does somebody not necessarily go about exactly calculating their, their power zones, but how do you maybe recommend somebody to familiarize themselves with coming up with these different targets for what these different uh, types of run types you're talking about? The easiest way, and it's probably the least practical way for most people, is simply to do a critical power test uphill. Mm-hmm. That's the simplest way. But a lot of people don't have a nine-minute hill at a, at a relatively, you know, you don't want any kind of downhills or any flat sections. You want it to be fairly consistently uphill for nine minutes. Most people don't have that. Mm-hmm. Um, I think probably I've got one client who's got that. So everyone else we've had to kind of work around. Right. So the best way to work around that is do your critical power test on the flat so you know what you can handle on the flat. Mm-hmm. Then all you have to do is you have to do the same session you do on the flat as uphill. So let's say your longest hill is five minutes. Mm -hmm. So you want to do, you know, to make the test kind of relatively accurate, you want to be doing 
20 to 40 minutes of work, usually 20 to 30 minutes is enough. So what I mean by that is you want to do enough intervals to end up doing 20 to 30 minutes of effort. Mm -hmm. So let's say that might be, if your longest hill was four minutes, it might be seven by four minute efforts. Now, on an on a uphill, you have to run back downhill. So I would say, okay, do your seven by four minutes hard uphill, super easy back downhill, time what that is. That might be four minutes back downhill. Mm-hmm. then you've got to work out okay i did seven by four minutes uphill four minutes recovery downhill and my average power for those seven reps was let's say 260 watts mm-hmm. you might have started at 250 and then because you, you want it fairly consistent you don't want to blow out at 280 for the first two reps and be finishing up at 230 for the last two reps right you want to learn to pace it so it's relatively consistent for all mm-hmm. reps so if you blow it out for the first time because you don't know what pace to do at, scrap that result ignore mm-hmm. it come back a week later and do it again mm-hmm. Once you've got a session which you think is fairly reflective of your fitness, you pace it fairly well, then later the next week when you're at a similar fatigue level, like it's no point doing one of these tests a day after a long run, the next test the day after three days off. You've got to do them at a comparable fatigue level. Right. So then do the same test on the flat. Do seven by four minutes hard at the flat with a four-minute jog recovery. Mm-hmm. Then you can look at it and go, okay, on the flat I averaged 235 watts. Uphill I averaged 255 watts. Mm-hmm. So at that kind of intensity, I'm 20 watts higher. So that starts to give you an idea. Okay, I can handle about 20 watts higher at that kind of intensity than I can on the flat. Or it might be lower. It depends mm-hmm. on, on you. You might find, okay, I can only handle 205 watts. Right. That starts to give you an idea about where you sit. Then mm-hmm. you can start looking at your long runs. And go, okay, in my long runs, um, using the power zones calculated from my flat test, um, I'm noticing that uphills, if I kind of keep the same kind of effort level. So when I'm running the long runs at say 200 watts, mm-hmm. I go up here, I try and keep the same kind of effort. I'm mm-hmm. noticing it. Yeah, it's about 220 watts. So that mm-hmm. kind of fits in with the test I did. So you're starting to get an idea that uphill is about 20 watts higher than down than flat. Mm-hmm. So straight away, that's kind of all you really need to know. Now, the thing with trial running and ultras is unlike road running where your power levels pr- pretty much need to be within two or three watts. With trial running, you've got a much bigger margin for error. There's much more variation in the noise in trail running. That's not to say it's not valuable or accurate it is, but you'll find that, you know, if you have your watch set at kind of, you know, instantaneous power and you look at it every 10 seconds, 230, 245, 215, what's going on? It's fluctuating. But when you look at your graph afterwards, you can see that it's sitting at, you know, 220 plus or minus a little bit. So it is still accurate, but if, if you're new to power on trails, I'd recommend doing three seconds, maybe in 10 seconds to take out that fluctuation. Mm-hmm. Um, so once you understand that you don't have to be that accurate with, with trails, you've got to get in the ballpark. It kind of takes the pressure about knowing, oh, I need to know, like, is it 225 or is it 228? Like, mm-hmm. you don't need to know that. Mm-hmm. 225 to 230 is fine. Because mm-hmm. what happens in ultras, and this applies to road now as well, anything more than about four hours, we see a decline in power. Mm-hmm. So even when you talk about, you know, the world record holder for 100 kilometres on the road, their pace still declines after about four and a half hours. They're still getting slower. Mm-hmm. So we're not talking ISO power for the whole run. There will be a, a degradation in power throughout the run. So let's say, we, let's keep it flat to start with to make it easier to people understand. Let's say we're doing a, a 50k flat forest trail race. And let's mm-hmm. say we've calculated our power to be 220 watts is our target power. Let's say that 50K, we estimate it's going to take us about six hours. 
So what that'll mean is for the first three or four hours, you'll sit pretty much steady and then there'll be a slight decline. Mm -hmm. So to average 220 watts, knowing it's going to decline a little bit later on, we could probably go up to 230 watts and mm -hmm. drop down to 210 watts by the end. So it means you, you don't have to be that accurate. If you were mm -hmm. seeing 250 watts, oh, okay, you're going to blow up. But if it's kind of 230 watts, 10 watts, it's, it's okay. Um, the other thing, once you understand ultras a bit more or trial running, if I calculate the difference between, say, a 12-hour finish and, say, a 10-hour finish in a race, it's about four watts. Mm -hmm. like, it's not much. So the difference in time comes from your execution of the race. It comes down to how well you can maintain power, how well you can get the race stations, how well you can run down hills, mm -hmm. Uh, how much running you do versus hiking, all those things add up to that time difference. But the watts itself aren't a lot. So you don't have to worry about being super accurate. You just need to get the data in the ballpark mm -hmm. and you'll get the results you want. Mm -hmm. So like anything else with, uh, with running in general athletics, it takes a little bit of practice and it takes a little bit of, like you said, uh, investment of your own kind of you know personal time to figure it out. You wouldn't just... Uh, plug something into a calculator necessarily because everybody's different, especially when you put in this skill factor, like you're talking yeah. about the trails. Um, so the other thing I wanted to talk about, uh, when you talk about specifically that switch, let's say for this example runner, they know that they can go up about 20 Watts based off their hill test versus flat test. When they start to go above that, um, that power range, when they're going uphill, there's the concept of uh, hiking or power hiking and switching to a sort of walk. Can you explain that a little bit more for people that, you know, they're used to road racing. They assume you just have to run the whole entire time unless you grab a drink at an aid station and then you walk a tiny little bit and then you go back and sprint and try and catch up. What is that kind of switch to the, the power hiking or the power walk on the trails like? Yeah, good, good question. Again, um, I think the easiest way to understand hiking for someone who's new to trails and ultras is I've got some data on a couple of athletes who did uh, Ultra Trail Australia, which is a 100-kilometer race in Blue Mountains in Australia. It's got about 4,500 metres of vert, a lot of stairs. Uh, it's not extreme by any means, but it, it's, a, it's a serious challenge. So um, I coached the guy who came second last year. Mm -hmm. So we've got his data. So I was able to analyze um, how much hiking he did in that race. So he took nine hours, 24 minutes to do the 100K. He hiked for, I can't remember the exact numbers, but it was just over an hour, I think, of that nine hours, 20 was hiking. Mm -hmm. Now, another runner who came just over 15 hours, which is still a solid time, like she finished, I think it was about 300 or 400 out of 1,500 or something like that. So still, you know, just ahead of the middle of the pack. Mm -hmm. um, but she hiked, I think it was five or six hours of that. Mm -hmm. So, you know, when you think about that amount of hiking, over, over 15 hours, she spent five to six hours hiking that. You get to understand that hiking is a pretty important component of ultras. Mm -hmm. Now, if you're doing, uh, you know, a, a pancake flat ultra of 100Ks, then yeah, the elites are going to run every step. Mm -hmm. And as you get slow, you start walking some of it. But when you're talking hills, the elite walk as well. Mm -hmm. So when to hike, when to run and power levels of hiking versus running. First of all, hiking is a different sport again. So you'll have different power levels hiking. Now the difference between hiking and running is the, the speed range of hiking is far less. So running, obviously you can go, you know, even if we look at uphill, you can go from sprinting uphill and all that 10 second sprint and be running, I don't know, 
five minute miles to 10 seconds mm-hmm. to, to running, you know, virtually on the spot, but still running and doing I don't know, 15 minute miles. Mm-hmm. Whereas hiking, you know, once you get too fast, you break out into a run. Um, so the, the range in hiking is, is much less. So you, you can do a critical power test hiking, but unless you've got a super steep hill, you're going to be limited because you're going to want to break out into the run. You're going to, well, I could push harder, but right. I'm going to be running. So right. the critical power test hiking is not as valid. It doesn't give you as much info. So then what I suggest doing is looking at um, what your hiking levels are when you do specific hiking repeats. Mm-hmm. So I recommend all my runners do some kind of hiking training. Uh, and the slower they are, the more hiking training they'll do. And by that, I mean, they might do a session where they do, let's say, four by six minute hills. Mm-hmm. The first two, they run the whole lot. The second two, they hike the whole lot. Now, at, at the maximum effort they can sustain for that kind of period of time. Right. So that gives you an idea. Okay, when I'm running uphill, I'm pushing 240. When I'm hiking uphill, same hill, I'm pushing 190. Mm-hmm. All right, cool. Then you can look at your hiking power out in your long runs. Like, okay, well, I can push 190 when I'm doing a flat-out six-minute hike, but in my long runs, I'm pushing 150. Mm-hmm. And that's not dawdling. That's just not cruising up. That's kind of like trying to keep my effort level the same as what I'd be doing if I was running. Right. Uh, it's about 150. So that gives you some idea. Okay, when I'm doing my long runs, it's 150. When I'm pushing hard, it's 190. So in a 100K ultra, I probably shouldn't go much above 150. 160. If I'm seeing 180, 190 early on, I'm probably hiking too hard. Mm-hmm. Now, the next question, which I think you asked, or if not, you implied, is when you should switch between hiking and running, and is there yes. a way to determine that? It's difficult because if hiking was the same action as running and we could compare power levels, then we could go, okay, well, at 240 watts running, I'm going this speed, and 240 watts hiking, I'm going this speed. Hiking is faster, same watts I should hike. Well, unfortunately, we can't do that because they're different activities. You can't equate the power levels. Um, So in races, what I recommend the best thing to do is if you're running with somebody and you start to get towards the max of your running power, go, right, I'm running at 240. I know I shouldn't go much higher. Let's look around. Who's around me? Are they hiking or are they running? Okay, they're hiking. Are they pulling away from me or am I pulling away from them? Okay, it's not much in it. Okay, let's try hiking. All right, I'm yeah. hiking. My watts has dropped back down to where it should be. Am I losing ground on them quickly or am I roughly in the same kind of ballpark and does it feel easier? Mm. Um, so to give an example, I did a race recently. It was only a 30K race, but I had 3,000 vert in it, a bit over 3,000 vert, so it was mm. reasonable. So we're running up this hill and a couple of people passed me running. Um, I had set some power targets obviously and I slowed down to keeping my targets switched to a hike every now and then based on that and they slowly slowly pulled away not really getting very far ahead um, but when they passed me I could tell they were working a lot harder than me mm-hmm. I could say hello how are you going and all I got much was like <gasps> <laughs> now that was about it right. got to the top of the hill and because I'd stuck to my levels I was straight into a normal run mm-hmm. no problems at all what they did they had to recover so they were still running, but they were recovering. You could tell they were catching their breath from the effort of going uphill. Within 100 yards, I was up to them. And the next two, they didn't catch me until much further up the hill. And then I never saw them again mm-hmm. because they were working too hard going uphill. They had to recover on the downhills. And you can make up a lot more time going downhill than you can going uphill. So knowing when to switch to the hike, when that's less effort, but not really that much slower. Mm-hmm is important only comes really in a race looking at people around you or in training 
looking at your times, hike up a hill, then run up a hill, mm-hmm. and compare the power, compare the effort. You know what? It was it was slower going uphill, but it was only like a minute slower over a nine minute hill, and it felt a lot easier. So if you're doing a, a twenty mile race, you might think, well, that minute over twenty miles might add up. Mm-hmm. If you're doing a hundred mile race or a hundred k race that minute's probably going to mean I'm going to be much, much quicker overall because I can save that time, be more consistent later on. Right. So you've got to play around a little bit with that. Right. Um, I think that's a great primer and a great intro for most people that are already familiar with power or and, and unfamiliar with the trails or people that are familiar with trails and unfamiliar with power. I think it kind of blends, blends both and helps both uh, sort of camps find it a little bit more information. Um, I want to kind of wrap up with the mistakes, and this is uh, going to be some just general coaching advice, the mistakes that you see people make when they're at trail races or ultra races. Can I just ask, answer one question that sure. kind of people will be asking after that last conversation? Yes, absolutely. Because I've had it. <laughs> then I'll come back, remind me if I forget. Yep. Um, the questions I get asked is, how, when I look at my long run, how do, I, how do I look at it afterwards mm-hmm. and know when I'm hiking, when I'm running? How do I analyze the data afterwards? Now, mm-hmm. I use WKO4, mm-hmm. uh, which some uh, listeners will know is a more advanced software that integrates with Training Peaks. And I can use a lot of charts, which kind of can tell when you're hiking, when you're running. Mm-hmm. But it's, it's a financial investment and it's a long, steep learning curve investment in time. So for a lot of people, they won't be bothered uh, or have the inclination to do that. So if you're using the Stride Power Center and you want to look at it afterwards and go, okay, when do I know I'm running and when do I know I'm hiking? At the moment, you can't look at the data afterwards and just look at the data and tell. Mm-hmm. So what you're going to need to do is use your, your lap split on your watch, um, particularly if you've got a Garmin watch. Correct me if I'm wrong. I know Garmin will, will lap quite well. I don't know if Sunto yeah. laps. Yeah, every, every, everything will do if you set it up the manual lap. Uh, okay, cool. View it in Power okay. Center. Yeah, split. So then what you need to do is manual lap every time you hike, mm-hmm. um, which you can't do if you're switching regularly. So the advantage of WK4 is you're going up a long climb and you're 60 seconds run, 75 seconds hike, blah, blah, blah. Like if you're doing that in your watch, you look at the data afterwards, you go, oh, I can't remember if that was hiking, that was mm-hmm. running, it's so many laps, I'm confused. So don't do that. But what you want to do is when you do a stretch of hiking versus a stretch of running uphill, make sure you lap it. Mm-hmm. So when you look back at the data afterwards, you can go, okay, that's when I was hiking, that's when I was running. Mm-hmm. Now, one trick you can do if you're not sure is look at your ground contact time mm-hmm. because your ground contact time will be usually higher than 500 milliseconds if you're hiking mm-hmm. and more like 300 or less if you're running. Right. Or look at your cadence. Okay. If your cadence is 70 or 140, depending on what you use, um, or less, you're probably hiking. If it's more than that, you're probably running. Yep. So you can use the Stripe House and use the kind of little sliders mm-hmm. and look at your hills and go, okay, that must have been hiking, that must have been running. So you can analyze it that way. It's a little bit more kind of in depth than using WK4, but it's a lot, lot easier than going to that trouble of doing it. So you can still do it. You've just got to use your lap function on your watch to get right. the data that you're after. Um, and that way you can analyze your long runs. Like, okay, in my long run, I'm usually running at 230 watts uphill. Hiking at 190, downhills is actually downhills. I haven't talked about downhills um, on non-technical trails. Mm-hmm. Downhills actually works out to be about the same as hiking for a lot of people. The power levels, for some reason, um, I wouldn't rely on that. I'd do your own testing, but it, it's typically about the same. So if you're running down a nice forestry trail, seven percent downhill, it's going to be less. So you can use your little sliders on mm-hmm. the power center to kind of look at that. Mm-hmm. 
once there's technical stuff, once there's kind of a bit of rock hopping, stairs, that kind of stuff, power really goes out the window for in-run data metrics. And the reason for that is it jumps around so much. Mm -hmm. Like power is at its best when every stride is similar to the last. Mm -hmm. If you're jumping up, you know, a big stair, then you the next step is on the same stair and, it, and it's all kind of random like that. The power spikes will be all over the place. Mm-hmm. But post-race analysis, the post-run analysis is still quite consistent. I've got a client of mine who did this super technical short climb and the power data ranged from 200 watts to like 500 watts. It was mm-hmm. just jumping all over the place. When I first looked at it, I thought, that's useless. I can't use that at all. But he did three reps of it. And mm-hmm. when you looked at the averages over those three reps, they were remarkably consistent. Mm-hmm. So Stride was doing its job. It's just that the, the kind of differences in the power between each step was massive that you couldn't look at it during a watch. Right. So on technical downhills, and I know people say, look, you can't really stride on, on trails because you can't use on technical downhills. No, you can't. But skill is the biggest limiting factor on technical downhills. Right. If you're looking at your watch running a technical downhill, you're not going <laughs> fast enough because you know, you're doing it too comfortably. Right. The other thing on runnable downhills, even if it's road but it's steep, it's still a skill factor. It's still mm-hmm. the ability of your legs to get the cadence up high enough to run faster. For most people, you'll find you'll naturally break because you haven't got the confidence in your cadence to run faster. Mm-hmm. So again, you're not really looking at power. It's more skill-based. So mm-hmm. downhills, don't worry about it. If it's technical, it's just go by skill rather than by power. Right. Sorry, back to your question. No, 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 that's great. Um, that's a great point to add that I that I forgot to bring up. Uh, but a lot, a lot of people you know, worry about the the, the skill factor like, like you're talking about, but then it comes down to the practice and then when it comes to, you know, incorporating stride or the concept of power for that post analysis, you can glean so much information and know how to kind of structure. And then again, if you're working with a coach and you're looking at the same set of data, you can kind of converge and and see what uh, things you can improve on. Um, Yeah. So, so the last thing, uh, like I mentioned, just uh, any general tips or mistakes that you see uh, people make when they maybe run their first trail run. You mentioned, uh, you know, somebody starting out way too fast because they finally feel good off fresh legs um, and they're super excited. But do you have any um, sort of pointers for somebody's very first time out? Uh, as far as racing or training? Uh, let's say it's their very first training session. Okay. Um, so first of all, I think forget what you watch. Forget pace. You can look at power if you've done some uh, tests on that. Um, but forget pace. Um, that's the number one thing. Second thing, enjoy it. I mean, I know that sounds silly, but you know, one of the benefits on trails is, is having fun out there and um, learn to, to let go of, you know, this should be a 10 mile run or eight mile run. Uh, and my, almost all my clients are coached by time, not distance. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause that allows you to just get out there and enjoy a one hour run without worrying about speed and pace and distance and stuff like that. Um, so I think that's important. I think one of the mistakes people make is trying to run too much of the uphills when they first get onto trails. If you find your, I mean, all the same rules that we apply to road running in terms of easy runs, easy and harder runs, they all apply to trial running. There's no difference at all. Right. So if you're doing an easy run and let's say you're a road marathon and your easy run is, I don't know, nine minute miles, you know what that feels like, whether that's 200 watts or RPE, whatever you want to, you know what that feels like. Mm-hmm. When you come to trails and you start getting some hills, 
just because it's trails and hills doesn't mean you forget all that. Mm-hmm. If you're running up a hill and you find that the effort level has gone up considerably, my watts is now 30 watts higher than what it used to be on the flat. I feel like I'm working much harder, but I, I run, I'm a runner. I shouldn't be hiking. It's like, no, if you're on trails, you're a trail runner now and <laughs> trail running means hiking on steep hills. Right. So let go of that notion of, of you're a runner and embrace the fact that you get a bit of a rest while you're hiking up hills. It, it's, mm-hmm. it, you know, it, it's a change in muscles. Um, the other mistake people make though is they treat it as a rest totally and they just kind of switch, oh, I'm now I'm walking. Mm-hmm. Like it, it should all feel the same intensity. So whether you're running on the flat or running uphill on the road, it all should feel the same effort levels, which right. power does really, really well. Right. So same with on the trails. When you're running or hiking uphills, it should still feel like the same intensity as you were doing an easy run. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other thing that particularly applies to is the downhills. What I see is probably the most common mistake people make is on the downhills, they treat that as just a super easy cruise downhill. And the effort level is far, far lower than mm-hmm. what it was on the uphills on the flat. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a mistake because you, you lose the ability to develop your skill um, because you're just kind of jogging down. Uh, and also your workout isn't as, you don't get as much workout benefit from. Not to say you should push the downhills, mm-hmm. but it shouldn't feel so much easier than the uphills or the flat. Like right. it's not, not like doing repeats where you run up hard then jog back down. That's, that's different. That's recovery. But in your long trial runs, your downhills should feel like the same kind of effort level as they do on the ups. Mm-hmm. Now, the catch though is that the effort is different. On the downhills, cardiovascularly, you're going to feel like it's less, but leg-wise, you're going to feel like it's a fraction more. So it's a little bit different, but you should still feel like, okay, mm-hmm. I'm breathing easier, but my legs still feel like they're working as much as they would as if I was running on the flat. I think mm-hmm. that's a mistake people make. Great. Yeah. I think getting the effort level right for the ups and downs is, is the biggest mistake people make. That's great. Um, this has been super helpful. I'm sure I we will have the opportunity for more questions in a follow-up episode in the future. Yeah, for sure. Um, for sure. Is there any way that people can either get in contact with you, ask you questions, or find out more about your coaching services? Yeah, for sure. I'm on Facebook, Mile27. Um, you can email me at andy at mile27.com.au. Don't forget the AU, otherwise it's a graphic design company in New York. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure that's happened uh, before then. <laughs> um, or I'm always on the Stride um, Facebook group uh, on there, so ask questions on there. Um, and my, my website as well has got a, a few articles on Stride, um, I'm also putting out a, a guide to trail running with power in the next month or so, so keep an eye out for that. Great. Uh, but always happy to answer questions on, on power for trail running, so either email me or the best thing, though, I think, is put it on the forum, the Stride mm-hmm. forum, so everyone can learn and um, we can all learn from the answers rather than a one-on-one. It's usually more beneficial for everybody. That is great. Uh, Andy, I want to thank you again for taking the time. I'm sure this will be super helpful and I hope uh, at least one person decides to maybe check out the trail that they were, you know, have been thinking of for the longest time just based <laughs> off the uh, the wise words that we got today. Cool. Um, that does it for uh, this episode, episode six, I believe. Uh, and we will be back next week with a uh, another edition of the Stride Power Podcast. Thanks again, Andy. Pleasure.